0: Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Welcome back once more to the Dwell Digital Living Room. So thankful that you could join us this morning. We're continuing our How to Be series where we're looking through the book of Psalms and seeing uh, ways that we might live more into this Jesus life. So today we're talking about commitment. Now, uh, before I dive in, I have to do a brief, unauthorized, completely non-historical history of commitment. Back in the 80s, by the way, most of my research is done uh, based on television programs that I watched growing up in the 90s. Just a little FYI there. So, uh, back in the 80s at some point, someone came up with the term fear of commitment. Okay, And in fact, uh, in 1987, there was a book that was written by um, some folks that wrote a book called Men Who Can't Love. And uh, I don't know if they really like caught a wave that was already swelling or really were sort of the genesis of this whole movement, but they even came up with a term called commitment of phobia. And so... The basic idea was that there was something changing or at least something that someone had noticed about men and how they lacked committing or lacked the ability to commit or were actually afraid of committing, fear of commitment. Now they later had to rewrite the book to include women too because this isn't a solely men kind of problem. But it sort of like started this whole thing where now popular culture has recognized that there is a commitment fear and a problem that is arising in society uh, that is something that we really hadn't dealt with before. As a society. You've probably seen this in every 90s sitcom from Seinfeld to Friends to anything else that was on TV and basically any movie during that time period that starred Hugh Grant in it, right? Like I don't know what it is about this you know cheeky British fella but he is the king of fear of commitment movies. Concurrently you had like the rise of lack of commitment and as a lifestyle. You developed the serial bachelor and the serial bachelorette, uh, the decline of marriage rates the attack on the belief that the entire uh, marriage system is even healthier or beneficial. Also, you can continue to cite Hugh Grant movies, right? This is still sort of, uh, he's kind of the guy that is the serial bachelor in every movie. Now, here's what's really interesting. Uh, these two movements were happening simultaneously, but also working, working together. And they found this sort of like marriage on the other end. One movement saying like, oh, you don't want to commit, you're afraid to commit. And then the other movement is saying, well, commitment is not necessary. And all the while, uh, those two things are sort of like growing closer and closer together to like uh, build momentum and sort of snowball into an even bigger movies. Now, our movement, now you can enter the 2000s. Postmodernism has finally sort of reached popular culture. Philosophers have been talking about it for years, but now everybody's sort of buying into these ideas. And uh, it's no longer just for the philosophers and the nerds. Uh, we're deconstructing every single thing that we can get our hands on as a society. Nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing uh, is outside of our range where we can sort of take it apart and see if it is worthwhile and meaningful for us. What that means is that our long-standing structures and systems become, start to become meaningless. You can now leave your family if they don't really do it for you uh, or if you have problems with them. You can now drop that relationship with you if you want. Uh, if it doesn't make you happy, then you can ditch it. Uh, this is all, the, all of the things that are happening throughout the thousands. We drop feeling bad. and because of that, we drop feeling bad over breaking up plans or breaking up with people. Uh, we shouldn't feel bad about breaking care or breaking things that we don't want to do. We shouldn't feel bad about not committing to the things that we don't want to do. And the result is that now we've reached a society where commitment is not even necessarily you know, praised as a virtue. Commitment is not something that we really value. Commitment is not even something that you know, we sort of care about. Now all of a sudden it's like totally socially acceptable to be uncommitted, to be non-committal, if you will. And the result is, here it is, the year 2020. The person is me. And uh, not the best person, but probably not an awful person. Generally mediocre to pleasant to be around depending on my mood. And here's what's happening. Texting a friend. Hey man, do you want to grab lunch sometime? He says, sure, I would love to do that. I say, how about two days from now? And he says, we'll see. To which I respond, hmm, thinking face. Then I uh, text him back. Hey man, uh, next day, we're on lunch for tomorrow? On for lunch tomorrow? And he says, well, you know, I'm trying not to commit to so much in my life, so uh, let's just leave it at, at maybe, right? So, okay. Sitting around. Text him day of. Hey man, are we good for lunch today? Ooh, I don't really know. I think I kind of need to spend some time with myself. I I don't know if I can do that today. Let's wait until it's closer till time. Now, maybe uh, I'm the only person that's bothered by this. Maybe it's like a problem within myself that I'm too selfish with my time or just too sensitive or something like that. Maybe I'm just tying my value up and whether or not this person signs up. Or maybe I'm just a planner. I don't really know. But I don't understand this, like, I cannot commit to a one-hour lunch that's happening two days from now. I don't understand this, like, impulse where we're saying, like, ooh, uh, maybe something better is going to go along. Maybe I don't want, will not want to do it then. Maybe I don't really know what's going to happen. I don't really get it because being on the other side very often just makes me feel worthless or infuriated or confused and frustrated and I'm navigating these little social rules that we have to abide by to be able to be like hey man I just need to know need to know whether or not you want me to show up at a certain place in a certain time so that we can be friends now I know I'm taking it too far and I also know that I am I have been and probably will in the future be on the other side of that text message I get it it makes sense Uh, maybe I should give everybody a little bit more grace. Maybe I should be a little bit more accepting of our anti-commitment culture. Or maybe I should just take it from this text. I mean, maybe we should just jump right in. Psalm 37, verse 1, it says, Fret not because of evil. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. I'm going to memorize that verse and that's going to be my thing. I'm going to text somebody and be like, hey man, do you want to grab lunch? And they're going to say, we'll see. And then this is what I'm going to quote to myself. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Okay, not really. I'm not saying the people that don't, uh, you know, make stable plans are evildoers necessarily. But I can tell you why this whole thing happens. Uh, It happens because committing to something is kind of a value statement. And we have trouble with delayed gratifications. So committing to something is a value statement, and we have trouble with delayed gratification. Now, uh, there's sort of two things right there. First is committing is actually a way of showing what you really value, like what's important to you. So if you have an option to go to two different things, you're going to say, I value this one thing more than the other, so I'm going to choose it. But since we have troubles with delayed gratification, that idea that like, you know, uh, if you wait longer, you can actually get something better. Think of like the marshmallow experiment that they do with kids where they sit a marshmallow in front of them and they say, hey, you can have this one now or you can have two later and it's very, very difficult for the child to just sit there and watch one marshmallow that they can have when two will come later. We have challenges with that. And so you combine those two things and basically committing becomes almost impossible for us to do because we're always thinking well what do i value but then the question is really what do i value in this very moment in this very second more now why does all this matter am i just some you know grumpy old curmudgeon who wishes people would come to lunch with him more often probably but also it matters because community or committing is important Now first, uh, if you don't, if you can't commit, it really makes you bad at community. Like a person who's always flaky, a person who's always breaking plans, a person who's afraid to commit to doing anything is really frustrating to the people around you, and it makes it very, very difficult for you to experience community. But even more than that, it makes following Jesus exceedingly difficult makes following Jesus exceedingly difficult. If you have the inability to commit, it's extremely hard to actually follow after Jesus. Jesus says this multiple times. And I want you to think of this in context of like the things we typically talk about Jesus saying, right? Because we all tend to in our own minds, and I'm guilty of this as well, just taking those few things from Jesus, the, the rules that we really like, or the things that he says that are really inspiring, and sort of not thinking too much about the other ones. But he talks about this a lot, all right? Here it is, Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, Luke 14, 25-27 says this, Many people were traveling with Jesus. He said to them, If you come to me but will not leave your family, you cannot be my father. You must love me more than you love your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters—even more than your own life. Whoever will not carry the cross that is given to them when they follow me cannot be my follower. Mark eight thirty-four through thirty-six says this: And calling to the cro- er, and calling the crowd to him with all his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus says that combining anything with following him is following. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out. You cannot follow Jesus and still have all of these other things, which means you really cannot follow Jesus if you're afraid of actually committing to him. Right? If you have all these other ideas, all these other things that you possibly value, if you have all these other, you know, oh, I'll maybe do this unless something better comes along. If you have those ideas and you try and bring that into your Jesus relationship, it is just not going to work out. You can't truly follow Jesus while still leaving it open for other things. You can't actually sort of halfway commit to Jesus. It's an all in or all out kind of thing. And it's easy to listen to this. I do this all the time when I'm listening to sermons. It's easy to listen to this and think about all of those other people that get this wrong, right? You know, probably people in your mind are like, yeah, yeah, Bill's really bad at commitment. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, Josie's really awful at this or something like that. But I want to invite invite you to just take one moment. Stop thinking about all the other people and all the other things that they're trying to combine with their Jesus life. And just think about your own. Think about the level to which you would say that you commit to Jesus. Think about how much you would say that you are fully in to this Jesus life. Maybe even ask yourself then this question. If you, don't, if you can't answer that question by saying, I'm 100% in with Jesus. I follow him. He guides every single decision and every single thought of my day. I'm all the way committed. If you can't answer that way, ask yourself this question. What do you often try and combine with this Jesus life? Like, what are the other things that you're kind of bringing in to following Jesus, the other values, the other priorities that sometimes will upstage committing to Jesus? Is it wealth? chasing after uh, that American dream? Is it happiness and comfort to say, like, you know, I'll follow Jesus as long as it's continuing to make me more and more comfortable? Is it family? This is sort of a a huge American idol because somehow uh, the church has sort of established itself as the center of, you know, um, promoting family health and wellness when really we should be the center of promoting Jesus, which then hopefully leads to a healthy family, not sort of getting those cart before the horse mixed up and backwards. Is it social justice? Is it this idea of, like, I'll follow Jesus as long as he uh, agrees with the things that I agree with? As long as, you know, uh, he is a person who, or, you know, he is the God of the universe who enables me to be more uh, activist, to to sort of uh, preach things that sort of uh, he can come behind me and agree with them? Now, these things are not necessarily bad. In fact, I don't think any of them are wrong. But they're only useful if they flow out of a life in Jesus, not the other way around. Like if Jesus asked you to sacrifice your money or do something that wasn't best for your family, or if he even called you to believe something uh, that was against sort of the norms of society or what society deems as like tolerant or progressive, like could you take that step? Would you be willing to? I have like an image and it's actually a biblical story that I just can't seem to shake from my head because I read it and uh, was confronted with the idea that I had been like blowing it off or not thinking seriously, seriously about it for basically as long as I've been a Christian ever since I read it for the first time. In Acts chapter 5, the church starts having some problems. Now remember, the church has really started in the book of Acts. Uh, It was just freshly created. Jesus had ascended. The Holy Spirit had come down in fiery tongues. Uh, Peter's preaching. Thousands of people are getting saved. The church is growing. They're praying for one another. They're caring for one another. Uh, They are loving one another and growing closer to Jesus, uh, listening to solid teaching, understanding who He is and accepting the gospel. It is a beautiful time. And all throughout this people were actually selling off their possessions and giving it to the church they were sort of they would sell off everything that they had and then lay it at the apostles feet and then the church would then uh, distribute it uh, among its members and the people that they were serving so that they might uh, flourish right and basically it says all the believers were holding everything they had in common with one another so there's a guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira and they think to themselves this is really cool Peter just preached an amazing sermon. Uh, We believe in this Jesus guy. We want to get all in on all of this. So they go off and sell their house. And apparently they're handed, you know, just a big old bucket of money for their house. And then they decide, hey, uh, we can keep some of this, right? Like, we don't have to show up and, you know, give all of this just because that's what everybody else is doing. So they pocket some of the money. And uh, Ananias takes the rest to Peter and sort of sets it at the apostles' feet. Doesn't mention, hey, uh, we kept some for ourselves. Doesn't try and, you know, show that like he actually is only giving a percentage of everything that he has. He's trying to sort of show that just like everybody else, he's all in. He's trying to pretend that he's all about this Jesus life, just like all these other people that have sacrificed everything that they had. This is what Peter says to him. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did you not? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And then they all laughed about it, right? No. And then they had a big church meeting and talked it through. No, that didn't happen either. Uh, then they politely asked him to leave or even kicked him out of the church. No, that's not what happened. He died right there, right then and there. His wife came in later, basically tried to pitch the same story, and then she died. The exact same thing happened. Now, this is not, don't hear me wrong, some sort of cautionary tale about tithing or something like that. Like, uh, that's not what I'm trying to say here. This is a lesson about committing to Jesus. This is a lesson about committing to His church. And we delude ourselves completely if we think that in any way we can do it halfway. If we think that Jesus is impressed by our halfway efforts. If we think that we can fool him by sort of bringing this Jesus and into the church. It's not the type of church that I want to be because I don't think you can even be a real church and be sort of a collective of people halfway in. Then you're just some community organization. You're just some strange country club that sometimes does good things. That is not the bride of Christ. That is not the body of believers that is enacting God's will throughout all of history. It's not the church that I want to be. In fact, I've been thinking about it in terms of this lately. And uh, it's kind of a tricky thought, but it's sort of the reformatting, reframing that I'm having about the church, especially in this moment. You know who I'm really, really interested in and excited about as a pastor? The people that are all in. The people that are fully committed. They're saying, I just want to know what Jesus has to say so that I can do it and apply it to my life. I don't really care the costs. I don't really care uh, what it's going to take from me. I just want to know what Jesus wants me to do and how I can do it. I'm not saying that those people are perfect. and, And honestly, that is many of you guys right now. Uh, fully committed to who Jesus is. I'm not saying that, you know, these people are perfect, that they never slip up, that they never get selfish, that sometimes while taking steps forward towards Jesus, they don't take steps back. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint some picture of like, you know, I only care about saints who are amazing, you know, and just give everything that they have. But I just really drive a lot of life, get a lot of joy from living in community with people who are trying. People who can say, I know I'm selfish and broken sometimes, but what I want to do, what I'm trying to do desperately is to follow after Jesus with all that I have. The other people that I get really excited about are people that are teasing out Christianity, people that are sort of trying it out for the first time, people that are exploring. Maybe they don't know Jesus yet. Maybe they do, but they haven't quite decided whether or not they want to lean in or not. Those people I also get extremely excited about. I love people uh, experiencing Jesus for the very first time and maybe even feeling that tug from the Holy Spirit. But what I'm recognizing is that I'm very frustrated by the people that are all the way in between. People like, yeah, I want to sort of, you know, kind of have an on-again, off-again relationship with the church. People that are like, oh, well, you know, I will do this community thing with the church. I'll, I'll be a part of the church as long as it doesn't cost too much to me and my time or freedom or money or energy. And yet, I think we as the American church, and Dwell is no exception to this, very often cater to those people. We say, like, okay, well, you know, like, we need to make church as low a bar po- as possible. We need to make commitment as low as possible so that those people can feel comfortable when they show up. I don't know what this is going to turn out to be, Dwell Church, and I don't want to make some sort of like, you know, line in the sand statement, but I I will just say, I think moving forward as we're sort of rediscovering what the church is and what it should be, those are the two people, the sort of people that are fully bought and committed to Jesus and the people that don't quite know him yet fully, those are the two people we need to build our church around. Now we're not going to, you know, kick out people because they seem like they're halfway into us or anything like that. But no longer are we going to cater around their comfort and their pleasure. So, how do we do it? How do we be fully committed? Like, maybe you're a person like me who's saying, like, I want to be committed to Jesus. And sometimes I am, but sometimes I slip up. Sometimes I'm not quite on that track. Here's the the very small verse that I want to take from today's psalm. And you can go back. I highly encourage you uh, to read through the entire thing. It fits really well in a context. And there's actually some of our discussion questions that will hit another point uh, of this psalm. But here's what David says. He says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. When you're all in, when you've chosen to find your delight in God, which is a choice, right? This is like a command verb. He's saying, delight yourself in God. We often think of delight as something that just descends on us and falls on us, but you can choose what to enjoy. You can choose what to delight in. It says, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now take the second half of this verse and switch out desires of your heart for what your heart delights in, which I don't think is too strange of a switch. But then the verse reads something like this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what your heart delights in. This is what I like to call the reciprocal nature of Christianity, that the more you choose to find your delight in God, the more he gives you more of himself and the more you delight in God and so on. Right? So you, you say, I want to delight in God. Then God gives you more of himself or lets you experience more of himself, which causes you then to delight in God, which then causes you to start the whole process right back over. The more you find and delight in God, the more he gives you more of himself, the more that you delight in God. Now, some analogies are helpful here, right? Think about running. The more you run, the better you get at running. The further you can run, the more you enjoy running. Think about reading. The more you read, the faster you read, the more you want to read more. Think about TikTok apparently. I don't know. I guess it has to be this way because I really don't understand why anyone else would, why anyone do would do it. At first, you're all like, ew, this is kind of cringy and I don't really like it. I don't want to get into that. I don't need another social media. And then the very next day, you're like, you know, posting the dance video or whatever's going on, right? I don't really get it. Maybe that's a bad example. What's true of each of these, though, is it takes a little bit of effort to get where you want to be, right? Like, what if we all looked at running and many of us in the world look at it this way and say, like, I don't really want to do that. Nothing about that seems enjoyable to me. Whereas if you talk to someone who's like a regular marathon runner, running gives them a ton of life. It gives them a ton of joy. It keeps them healthy and it gives them time to sort of refresh and reset same is true for God. It takes a little bit of effort. It takes some sort of hard steps to push further and further and deeper and deeper into your relationship. It takes a little bit of work to even choose to delight in God in the very first place. But what is also true is that every small step that you take towards God, every time you choose to find your delight in Him as opposed to something else, He rewards it with massive changes within you. Now, it's not instantaneous. It's not sort of a, you know, give more to get more kind of relationship. But what it is, is when you choose to sort of take those little, little steps, those sort of like small initiatives on your end to find your delight in Him and not anything else, He is faithful. And growing closer to Him, you're going to fall more and more in love with Him. Growing closer to Him, you're going to understand more of who He is, understand more of His heart, and that is exactly what we are made to do. All it requires from you is commitment. I'm going to leave you with the words of David once more. Verse 5 says this, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act you guys have a great week thanks for listening we hope it brought you closer to jesus and more in touch with the world around you being a christian in today's culture can be hard fortunately he gives us the gift of community through his church so we would love to invite you to join us for one of our sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups all the details you need can be found on our website dwelldenver.org.